not Philemon, Philemon, 25 short verses here, packed full of God's truth. Now we are through the first seven verses already in this short epistle. You have met Philemon, the wealthy and influential man of Colossae, who was led to Christ by the Apostle Paul. We have been introduced to his wife, Aphia, and their son, Archippus, who also is in the ministry. We have also met Onesimus, the runaway slave, who has been led to the Lord by the Apostle Paul also. And we're not sure how this encounter happened, but we do know that somehow, in some way, in a city of over one million slaves, Onesimus and Paul's paths crossed. And as God would have it, when you cross paths with Paul, you're going to hear the gospel. And Onesimus uh, came to saving faith. Afterwards, the two men formed a very close relationship as Onesimus served Paul while he ministered, as we'll see later in today's text. However, as useful as Onesimus was to Paul in his ministry while he was in prison, there's still the issue hanging over their heads about uh, this personal relationship, this ministry relationship, and this relationship between two brothers now in Christ who have this conflict at hand. Let's not forget Onesimus has broken the law as it stood under Roman law. He's considered a criminal, actually a felon under Roman law. But beyond that issue of the ministry and beyond that issue of the Roman legal system, Onesimus is now a Christian and he's wronged a fellow brother in Christ. And so that issue has to be revolved. The primary issue in this epistle is forgiveness. Now that is a subject, my friends, that we could probably talk about every week of the year here. Because all of us at some point in time have struggled with forgiveness. Maybe even now you're here today and there's, you're having trouble forgiving others who have wronged you. Now, the forgiveness that's talked about in this epistle is not the forgiveness as the world deems appropriate for forgiveness, but forgiveness as God has commanded us to forgive as believers. The forgiveness that God commands is called biblical forgiveness. And remember, when we first started this epistle, we looked at some of those passages where God clearly defined that for us. Colossians 3, 12 and 13. Ephesians 4, 31 or 26 through 31, actually. We are to forgive as God has forgiven you in Christ Jesus. That's our standard. And as hard as we would like sometimes to add attachments and conditions and strings to that, that is not biblical forgiveness. That's worldly forgiveness. That is infiltrated biblical forgiveness. Well, we learned a few things so far about biblical forgiveness. In verses 1 through 3, we learned that believers are called to be a forgiving people. Why are we called to be a forgiving people? Because, beloved, we realize how much we have been forgiven. We understand that our sins have been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. We truly understand the penalty for our sin and how God has wiped that clean through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We, of all people, beloved, 
need to understand and live out biblical forgiveness because we get it. We understand. We also learn that when we forgive others like that in the way that God has commanded us to do, we will often be misunderstood. The world will not understand how we can forgive like that. You'll hear phrases like, well, I could forgive, but I could never forget. I could forgive, but I could never, ever have even speak to that person ever again in my life. I could forgive, but trust me, if that subject ever comes up again, I'm going to bring it up and remind them. But the problem with that, my friends, is that that's not biblical forgiveness. That's worldly forgiveness. Nowhere do we find those strings and attachments in Scripture. Instead, we read passages like, forgive as Christ has forgiven you in Christ Jesus. Lastly, we learn that God will chastise those who fail to forgive biblically. We looked at a passage in Matthew 18 where the ungrateful servant who had been forgiven the unpayable debt would not forgive a payable debt to him. And and Christ was very direct in his response. Last week in verses 4 to 7, we learned what biblical forgiveness looks like. And the first thing we saw in verses 4 to 5 is that biblical forgiveness is demonstrated in our love for the Lord and our love for each other. In other words, only true believers love the Lord and love other believers like that. Only genuine believers can forgive biblically. Why not? Because the natural man does not understand the things of the Lord. He doesn't get it. But you, beloved, you have the word of God. You have the Holy Spirit to guide and direct you and to instruct you. You have the church. You have godly leaders giving you instruction from the word. The natural man has neither the capacity nor the desire for any of those things. But you have them all. God has provided those for you in his grace. Secondly, we saw in verse 6 that biblical forgiveness prioritizes the body of Christ and the glory of Christ So another quality and a characteristic that's necessary for biblical forgiveness is a desire to maintain fellowship in the body of Christ. That that's a driving force for believers. Is that they're not willing to splinter the body of Christ just to have their their forgiveness satisfied. They're not willing to do that. Because they know how important the body of Christ is to Jesus Christ. How important is it? Important enough that he went to the cross. Important enough that he created this organism called the church, the body of Christ. If you're a genuine believer, then you prioritize the fellowship of the body of Christ. You you want to do your part to ensure harmony and unity in the church. Paul also wrote at the end of verse 6, he said, For Christ's sake, or words are literally, unto Christ. Seek to forgive others for the glory of Christ, we saw as we unpacked that last week. For the glory of Christ, not just for the unity in the body of Christ, but also for the glory of Christ. What a powerful testimony it is to the world when we forgive others like Jesus has forgiven us. They don't understand 
but it's not like they don't notice. Finally, in verse 7, we saw that biblical forgiveness encourages the entire church. We certainly know that Philemon did simply because he demonstrated the qualities and characteristics of forgiveness. And because Philemon continuously demonstrated these qualities and characteristics of forgiveness, Paul is now going to make his plea to Onesimus. He's going to make his appeal to him. And his words are tender and compassionate and well thought out and empathetic and convincing. There's a balance between conviction and compassion here. There's conviction about the true worth of Onesimus, a slave who has become a Christian, but also a tender compassion for Philemon and the dilemma he has socially and what he's supposed to do now, how he's supposed to respond as a Christian. So both men are struggling with this dilemma. And Paul, to that end, is writing out instructions in 25 words, or in 25 uh, verses, thank you, on how to do that. And how to do that in a way that pulls the body together and encourages them, that maintains the priority of the body of Christ and glorifies Christ, that demonstrates love for each other and love for the Lord. So that's what we want to look at this morning as we explore now, not only what biblical forgiveness looks like, that's what we did last week, but the first requirement to be able to forgive, and that's an open heart. You have to have an open heart, my friends. That's the first step in forgiveness. That's what we want to look at today. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking to bless our time together as we unpack his wonderful truth. Heavenly Father, thank you, dear Lord, again for all who are here today. And Father, we cling to your truth that your word never returns to you void, that you accomplish exactly what you intend to accomplish in the hearts and minds of all who are here today as they hear your word. Father, we don't want to just be hearers of the word, but we want to be doers of the word. So as we hear your word today, Father, we don't want to just be thinking, boy, does so-and-so need to hear this. Boy, does the person next to me really need to hear this. But, Father, as we do with all of your truth, we would first apply it to ourselves. Oh, Father, what would you have me do with this? How should I apply this to my life so that it brings you glory and transforms me more and more into the likeness of your Son? May that be our heart's desire. May that be our heart's prayer here this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you have found yourself, uh, hopefully found Philemon there, and we are going to look at verses 8 and 9. Let's read those together. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So Paul here makes an appeal in your notes for point number one. Paul makes an appeal for an open heart on behalf of love. He says, I want you to have an open heart for forgiveness. And the first reason I want you to do that is for love. On behalf of love, for the sake of love, I want to make an appeal to you to have an open heart and be ready to forgive. 
Notice that the verse begins with therefore, which connects it to the preceding verses we talked about last week, in which Paul expressed great joy because Philemon's love and encouragement of the believers. And again, it's because of Philemon's past and continuing love for God and love for other believers that Paul feels comfortable even making this appeal to Philemon. He's, Philemon, I know that you're a believer. I know that you love the Lord and I know you love the body of Christ. I know you love other believers. And because of that, and because you continue to demonstrate that in the way that you live out your life, I'm going to make an appeal to you brother. So Paul goes about making his plea in what seems like a very unusual way. The first thing he says is, look, I could use the authority I have as an apostle to command you to forgive Onesimus as a brother in Christ. Could Paul do that? Yes. Has he done it in the past? Yes. Paul is not one who shies away from direct you know, uh, direct statements to people when they're uh, doing something or acting in a way that is not glorifying to God. He's not a guy who minces words. And so he's very direct, but he doesn't do that here. He knew that Onesimus's forgiveness hinged on obedience to the biblical commandments, not just a personal desire for him to do it. He understood that he would that this would serve as a precedent for the Christian community. He knew this letter was going to be circulated just like it was all the other letters circulated around those churches. So he's writing to Philemon, but he's also writing by extension to all of the churches and by extension to guess who? To us. And he's saying this is the first requirement for forgiveness. If Philemon were to refuse, it would be a rejection of the biblical forgiveness mandated in Scripture that we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, wouldn't it? What if Philemon said, I know what the Word of God says, but Paul, I just can't. Paul, I know that God commands me to forgive others. I understand how much God has forgiven me, but I will not forgive that person for what they have done to me. Can you imagine the effect that that would have had on all of the churches as this letter was circulated. And yet, in verse 9, he says, for love's sake, I appeal to you. I'm not commanding you. I'm making an appeal. Paul chooses to appeal to Philemon on the basis of love. Now, he has already called Philemon his beloved brother, Agaptos, which means beloved or loved one. And we looked at verse 7 where Paul tells Philemon that he has come to have much comfort in his what? His love. What kind of love was that? Agape love. Agape love. And again, this love he's referring to is not Philemon's love for Paul, but his love for God and for God's people. Paul's making an appeal for agape love. Agape love is the love that sets personal rights aside. Acting instead for Christ's glory and the welfare of others. It's putting someone else's needs ahead of my own. It's saying I'm going to glorify God instead of getting my pound of flesh.
Paul knows that Philemon is a man who's already demonstrated agape love. He's not speaking to a man who's embroiled in sin. He's speaking to a godly, mature Christian man. And that agape love is a powerful force in his life already. Further motivation for responding to Paul's appeal was that Paul was both an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Verse 1. Now, there's some debate about whether he means old man, as in chronologically old, or whether, because there's a very, another word very similar in the Greek that means ambassador. Uh, but I believe he's really is speaking old man, and that meant that Paul had the authority, since the older were the wiser, were the elders, and they were looked to to have the authority. They defaulted to their wisdom. Secondly, Paul's current predicament as an imprisoned old man greatly restricted what he could personally do for Onesimus. He's not able to go and say, Philemon, I'm on my way right now so you and I can sit down and talk about this. He's in prison. And so restoring Onesimus and bringing about reconciliation is totally dependent upon Philemon's response in love. Not out of duty, not out of compulsion, simply out of love. Imagine for a moment what this must be like for Philemon. In walks Tychicus with a letter from Paul. And right beside Tychicus is Onesimus, the runaway slave, who everybody in your household knows about, and everybody in the church which you hold in your house knows about. And there he walks in, right beside Tychicus, as you're opening up the letter to read this letter from Paul. Imagine the tidal wave of emotions building up in him. I'm sure one of those emotions is anger. Why would Onesimus do this to me after I have treated him so fairly? How could he do that to me? Another might be the emotion of betrayal or even embarrassment as he contemplates what action he should take now. What are others going to think of me if I just forgive him? Will I hold any respect? Am I going to get an onslaught of condemnation for forgiving him? Are my friends going to just tell me it was just too easy, wasn't it? You made it too easy for them. He has all the authority. He needs to do whatever he needs to do, whatever he pleases to do for punishment. He has the whole weight of the law behind him. But then he begins to read the words that Paul has written to him, and Paul responds and appeals to him, do not respond in anger. Do not respond out of bitterness. Do not respond out of embarrassment, but respond out of what? Love. That's the appeal. Well, that would be difficult for any one of us, wouldn't it? Because when somebody sins against us, the first thought we're thinking is not, how can I love them? Usually that's not our first thought. Trust me, as a counselor, that's not our first thought. It is so much more difficult to respond out of love when emotionally you feel justified in your response. 
when emotionally you feel, I have every right to be angry. I have every right to be bitter. I have every right to be embarrassed. I have every right to feel betrayed. I have every right to do that. And so then you justify all of those reasons why it's okay. But Paul doesn't say, hey, you're right to be doing all those, and you're right to respond that way, does he? No, he says, listen, here's how I want you to respond, because you are a believer. And because God has commanded you to forgive this way, and because it's so antithetical to how the world forgives, I don't want you to respond out of all those emotions that everybody tells you is okay to do. I want you to respond as a Christian out of love. Out of love. And this is why, as we talked about last week, we always need to respond with grace first, my friends. This should be, this should be emblazoned in the front of our Bibles. Always grace first. Always grace first. This is where we need to seek godly counsel that will require that of us and not simply agree with our self-justification. I know we're trying to be helpful to one another, but the most helpful thing you can do, beloved, for each other is point each other back to the word of God. By far, the most helpful thing you can do. We all need those kind of godly people in our lives, beloved. We all do that even though we don't want to call them, we know they're going to point us back to Jesus again when we're experiencing this tidal wave of emotions. You need people in your life that will say, what does Jesus say about that? What does God's word say about that? And we don't want to hear it, so we put it off and we avoid it and we, we refrain from it and we act like it's going to go away. Do you really think that God is going to allow you to wallow in that forever. No. He will keep steering you back until your heart is open, no matter how painful it gets. Because he knows what happens when you allow bitterness to take root in your heart. If you allow bitterness to root, take root in your heart, bitterness is like ivy. Have you ever seen ivy, how it grows? Ivy grows around the plant, and then it grows over top of a plant so they can take and steal all of the rain and all of the sun. And if that's not enough, it also grows down to the roots and wraps itself around all the roots so it can steal all of the moisture and all the nutrients out of the soil. And so when you see ivy growing, it's only a matter of time before ivy will take over every other plant that you have there. It'll be ivy and only ivy. That's what bitterness is like, my friends. It will consume your heart. And guess what happens when ivy, when bitterness takes over your heart? Then there's no room for love. So point number one, Paul makes an appeal for an open heart on the behalf of love. Point number two, we read in verses 10 to 11. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. So point number one, Paul makes an appeal for an open heart on behalf of love. Point number two, Paul makes an appeal for an open heart on behalf of a fellow believer. Notice what he says here in verse 10. He says, my child, Onesimus. 
From the moment that Onesimus was saved, everything changed between Paul and Onesimus. Paul understood that whatever had occurred in Onesimus' past was far away from him as the east is from the west. He knew that Onesimus was now a new creation in Christ, that old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. He would write in Galatians, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. So Paul welcomed Onesimus now as a brother in Christ in the way that we are welcomed into Christ's family in the moment of our conversion. But now Paul wants Philemon to welcome Onesimus the same way, no longer as just a slave, as the world would have looked at it, but now as Paul's son in the faith and Philemon's Christian brother. Now, that doesn't mean that this conversion changed Onesimus' legal position or that it cancels his debt to Philemon. It didn't do any of those things. It did mean that Onesimus had a new standing before God and before God's people, and Philemon needed to take that into consideration now. In verse 11, he, he does even a little play on words here to emphasize his point. Onesimus, his name means useful or profitable, and so he does a little play on words. He formerly was useless to you, but now he's useful. He does a little play on words. This can only mean that God had changed Onesimus. Before, he had rebelled against Philemon's God, but now he's in submission to God to the extent that he's willing to give up his freedom, go back and place himself under Philemon's authority, because that is what God would require him to do. Now, perhaps Paul is recalling his own conversion here. You remember when he sat for three days in that little house on Straight Street, blinded in Damascus, unable to eat, and everyone in contact with him, suspicious of his motives and why he was there, bringing up all of his horrible past again and again. But when Paul was visited by Ananias, a Christian, he placed his hands on Paul and called him what? Brother. Acts 9, 17. Brother. Paul demonstrated that transformation that Christ had accomplished was genuine. And then remember when the disciples in Damascus accepted him into their fellowship with an open heart? Paul was released from his past into the freedom of God's service. And this is Paul's hope for Anesimus as well. Paul saying, you need to take him back because he's not the same man. He's different. A radical change has taken place. He's going to serve you as if he's serving the Lord now. He says, I appeal to you on behalf of Onesimus, who stands before you, and he is my child. He is my son in the faith. Just like Timothy, just like Titus, even like you, Philemon. You're my son in the faith too. And so is Onesimus. And I'm sending him back to you, a different man, a transformed man, a brother in Christ to you. Onesimus is hoping to be reconciled with you and make right what he has done wrong. So he says, not only open your heart on behalf of love, but open your heart now on behalf of your brother or sister in Christ. 
Which brings us then to our final point in verses 12 to 14. Paul continues, I have sent him back to you in person. That is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. Point number three, Paul makes an appeal for an open heart on behalf of the gospel. Notice that Paul states that he has sent him back. Philemon would not have the opportunity to think over Paul's request. Onesimus is standing right in front of him as he's opening up the letter. Paul's request, uh, instead in all likelihood, he's facing Onesimus as he's reading the letter. And Paul says, I have sent him back. And I want you to know that that was not an easy decision for me to do that. He said, I sent him back, but let me tell you, it was like cutting my own heart out to do it. The word for heart here is not the normal cardia. It's where we get the word cardiac from. It's actually a different Greek word, blanca, which means bowel or the seat of your emotions or the, the pit of your stomach. That's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, this is how painful it is for me to send him off to you. This is how hard it was for me to tell him he must go back and reconcile to his brother. Paul, in essence, is saying, I'm sending you part of myself. This is how it feels to me. Why was it so hard to send Onesimus back? Why not only did he love Onesimus like his own son, But Onesimus has demonstrated the transformed life continually on behalf of the gospel. He says in verse 13, whom I wish to keep. He says, I wanted to keep him with me because he's so useful to me as I minister in prison, the gospel. He said, not only, remember, I'm not only old, I'm in chains, you know, or I'm I'm in prison. And here is a brother in Christ who is serving the gospel every day. He's doing the things that I can't do. Now, Paul isn't wanting, he says here, I wish to keep him so that what? On your behalf. What does he mean by that? Paul isn't wanting Onesimus to become his own personal slave. He wants him to become a servant of the gospel like Paul is. And so if Anismus were to serve the Lord, that would have ministered to Paul. He's telling Philemon, I know if it were possible for you to minister to me, you would do it. I know you would do it in a heartbeat, Philemon. I know how you love the Lord. I know how you love the gospel. But since you cannot do that, I know you would gladly have let Onesimus stay if I had just kept him and sent you a letter telling you how useful he is to me in my imprisonment. Then he adds a nice little touch here in verse 14. He says, but without your consent, I don't want to do anything. He said, I could ask you to do this, to keep him here for me. I could have just sent you a letter back and said, Philemon, I have decided to keep Onesimus and not even ever give you a chance to have to reconcile that in your heart about what the right thing to do is. He says, 
so that your goodness should not be, as it were, by compulsion, but of your own free will. He says, I don't want you to do good because you didn't have a choice. I want you to do good because you did have a choice. I want you to do good because you wrestled through it biblically and made the God-honoring decision to honor God first. Beloved, this is where forgiveness starts. It starts by opening up your heart and letting the person who has sinned against you back in. You need to be like the father and the prodigal son with open arms. I know how hard that is. It's difficult. You need to let go of the anger, the bitterness, the wrath. Quit assigning false motives to people. Instead, extend them grace. And you need to forgive them the way that Jesus has forgiven and continues to forgive you. How does he do that? Completely. Without strings. Without conditions. Without a grudge. Without holding bitterness. You must welcome them with an open heart and love them with the agape, sacrificial love of the will. It's a love that says, I choose to love you because it glorifies God. I choose to forgive you because I understand how much I have been forgiven in comparison. I choose to have an open heart on behalf of my love for God and all of my brothers and sisters. I choose to have an open heart on behalf of my brother and sister in Christ. I choose to have an open heart on behalf of the gospel. I never want to undermine the gospel by my own personal unforgiveness. I never want to be hypocritical as I proclaim to others the gospel and the forgiveness of my sins, but then refuse to forgive those who have sinned against me. Beloved, these are the appeals that Paul has made. These are the same appeals that go out to our heart today. Do you want to see real change in your personal walk with the Lord? You want to see real growth happen rapidly? Then cultivate an open heart for forgiveness. You want to see real change in your family? Then cultivate an open heart for forgiveness. You want to see real change in your community? Then cultivate an open heart for forgiveness. This is where forgiveness begins. You have to open up your heart. Remember what Peter said? Well, how many times do I need to do this, Lord? Three, four, five, how about seven? Twice what the rabbi said, plus one kicker, just to show you how gracious I am. Remember what Jesus' response was? No, Peter, not seven. Seventy times seven. Now, that doesn't mean Peter had a little abacus over there. You know, he's running the beads over here, right? You know, 418, 419, right? I forgive him, I forgive him. 491. Time for my revenge. No. No. He says, as long as they keep coming to you and they are truly repentant, guess what you're going to do? You're going to do the same thing to them that I do to you. And you're going to forgive them. Because you, beloved of all people, know how much you have been forgiven. Well, I hope for the sake of your love for God and for the sake of your love for each other as believers and for the sake of the ministry of the gospel, that you will learn to cultivate an open heart. Step one in biblical forgiveness. 
May the Lord help us all have an open heart for forgiveness, my friends, and for his glory. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we work through these verses that are so hard for us. Lord, sometimes we feel like we're the only one that has this very unique situation that we're going through, and so our situation is different. But, Lord, your word tells us quite differently. No temptation or trial has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not leave you, not forsake you. He'll give you the power, the means to be able to bear under it. And Lord, forgiveness is one of those trials we often struggle with. And Lord, there's probably not a person here today, myself included, that has not struggled deeply with forgiveness. But Father, I pray that you would help us to have an open heart for forgiveness. That we would learn to love each other the way that you love us, with agape love. And that, Lord, we would not just seek our own personal satisfaction or justification, but rather we would love you, love our brothers and sisters, and have an open heart for forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, again for the challenge from your word. Finish this, Lord, if you will, in our hearts and our minds, as only you can do. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.